We've been sharing a text in First Corinthians chapter, excuse me, First Timothy. I've been in First Corinthians for so many months. First Timothy chapter four and verse sixteen. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. In this context of the fourth chapter, Paul tells that there are definite things that the believer needs to be saved from, not the least of which in the latter days, Paul said, would be doctrines of demons and seducing spirits. And the thing that will save the preacher and his hearers from this seduction and false teaching will be correct teaching, the doctrine the teaching and I've suggested that there are a number of components in what the Bible calls the doctrine and one of those components I believe we have to recognize has to come with the man Paul not just his humanness not just his personality not just his charisma not just his abilities but the way that God raised him up for a specific purpose, his message and his ministry and the special truths that he emphasized. If we're going to properly understand this term, the doctrine, you have to understand Paul. You have to understand his 13 New Testament epistles because they basically contain the doctrine. I doubt if there are few individuals in the history of the church who were as opposing to Jesus Christ as was the man Saul of Tarsus. Probably the greatest rebel against God and his Christ was this man Saul. Someone has said one of the greatest proofs of the veracity, the truthfulness of the New Testament is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. The change that can be documented even according to history in the life of this one man has no other answer outside of a supernatural working of God. In fact, he tells us, and I want you to turn with me to his own testimony, if you would, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, concerning this man's conversion. He tells us that it was God's sovereign grace in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16 that changed him. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. You see, God raised up this rebel Jew this one who breathed out slaughter and threatenings against the early followers of Jesus Christ, converted him and held him up for the world to see as a trophy of his grace. And Paul said, it wasn't in me. I didn't design this. I was going against him. And God changed me and made me a pattern for everyone who would believe afterward on Jesus Christ unto life everlasting. 
And I think if we miss this, we have missed much of what God is trying to get us to see today. If we bring this man down, and I think you have to do that, if we bring this man down and consider him on a level with other of the New Testament apostles, we have to a large extent miss the emphasis that God wants us to see in what this man became by the grace of God. I'm reminded of another text that he wrote to the Corinthians in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And he again never got over the fact that he was not fit to be called an apostle because of his persecution and blasphemy against the early church. But he says in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. If we don't hear anything else with reference to the doctrine and Paul, this much you can't miss that out of this man's life and his ministry and his message comes this unaltering theme, the grace of God. The grace of God. And he applauded that in his life. Now to some, to even emphasize that sounds very boastful and egotistical. How can the man emphasize what God is doing through him without somewhat putting himself up front? And yet if you read those 13 New Testament letters by him, you will see that he always retreated from that personally, though he emphasized constantly the message, the ministry, the doctrine, the teaching that was given to him. May I just interject this at this point? I don't think that what we're seeing here about this man is any different than the special man that God chose of the nation of Israel in an earlier day to give through him the law, that is, Moses. Never was Israel guilty of worshiping a man when they spoke of Moses. When Father Abraham told the one who had gone into Hades you have Moses and the prophets. He wasn't emphasizing a man that they should turn to. Throughout the scriptures, even Christ made reference to the work and the ministry and the writings of Moses by just calling it Moses, the man. Never did Israel worship a man. Never did God intend them to worship a man by what he did through Moses. And certainly that's not the intent with reference to Paul. But because there has been so much put down today and for the last 2,000 years concerning the distinctiveness of Paul, some of us have to really shout it to get anybody to listen. That there was something special about the, mis the message, the ministry, and the doctrine of this man. And therefore, because of that overemphasis, may I say, there are those who would say, well, you worship Paul. No, only as God exalted him to be the exaltor of Jesus Christ. Now, let's look if we can, and I trust you still have your Bibles open to 1 Timothy chapter 1, at some of the details concerning this man's conversion. 
This man was saved specially. He was saved probably like no other before him or no other since has ever been saved. He saw Jesus Christ personally, face to face, on that Damascus road. There was no one witnessing to him. There was no preacher standing there preaching the, the word of God to him. There was no one giving him a tract. There was nothing that he was reading. He was on the road that was leading to more persecution and blasphemy against the cause of Christ. When traveling at noon, which was usually unusual for anyone to do in that Asiatic part of the world because it was not safe because of the heat of the sun, he saw a light by his own testimony above the brilliance of the noonday sun. Secular writers say at that point he became insane. Secular historians tell us at this point Saul of Tarsus lost his sanity. And from this point on, he was a man insane. And that's the way the secular historians describe the change that took place in this man's life. Well, you read his own testimony, and it wasn't insanity. It became the first sane thing that had ever happened to him. As he met face to face Jesus Christ, and he got the issue settled in his mind who Jesus Christ was, and why he was accosting him for a purpose to lay his hand upon this man and convert him to change him around and make him a spokesman for God instead of an antichrist of which he was. And Paul tells us about this in verse 13 of the first chapter of 1 Timothy, who was before, and notice that word before, a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am number one. The word chief here literally means the leader. At that time, in the era in which the Apostle Paul lived, the opposition that was coming back in God's face the antagonism and the rebellion against Jesus Christ was led by one man. That one man was not the high priest of Israel. That one man was Saul of Tarsus. He was the leading antagonist against Jesus Christ of his day. No one was more anti-Christ than Saul of Tarsus. And God in his grace changed that man. He showed him Jesus Christ face to face in his resurrected, ascended glory. And Saul of Tarsus being at least the honest individual that he was, when he saw Jesus Christ for who he was, and saw himself for what he was, we have by his own words in Acts chapter 9, Lord, what will you have me to do? I'm yours to command. Maybe some of you sitting out here this morning aren't that honest. You know who Jesus Christ is. You know what the Bible says about him. You know what the Bible says about yourself. That you're a sinner and for you Jesus Christ stepped out of his position of glory and came down here and for 33 years lived a perfect life and then died on Calvary's cross for your sins. You know that. And you know what the Bible says about him but you've never done anything about it. It's never changed your life. You know what that says to me? You are dishonest. 
for that dishonesty, you will suffer eternity in what the Bible calls the lake of fire. This man was a persecutor. He was a blasphemer. He had killed people because he believed they were wrong for their trust in Jesus Christ. But when he personally, face to face, was confronted with the reality of Jesus Christ, he was honest enough to say, I've been wrong. So wrong that if it isn't by your grace, I would continue on the broad road that leads to destruction. And this man was converted. He says by his own testimony, and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant in Christ Jesus. And stop and ask yourself, if you're sitting here, my friend, without Jesus Christ, how long has God been patient with you? He's shown you his grace. He's shown you repeatedly who Jesus Christ is. He's shown you your sin, your need of him, and you just sit on it. And one of these days, your last breath will be taken from you, and his grace will be over. And for the ages and the ages of the eons of eternity, you'll remember every opportunity that you had to know Jesus Christ, and you didn't do it. This man becomes a pattern of God's grace today. What he will do for anyone. What he has done for me. What he has done for everyone that he's brought to himself and put into the body of Christ to make up this new thing called the church. Now turn with me, if you will, to the book of Galatians because not only is this man's conversion special, but then God had something for him to do. Obviously, God just didn't want the heat taken off of that early church. He had something special for this man. And he became the special apostle of grace. And Paul says this to the Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men. He was not an extension of an existing apostleship. Which means he did not get his apostleship from Jerusalem or by virtue of the twelve. He was not an extension of that which already existed. He was an apostle not of men, neither by man. No man came and laid their hands of authority of apostleship on this man. Well, then how did he get it? He says, but by Jesus Christ. Just in the same way he was sovereignly converted, with no intermediary, no one going between. It was just Jesus Christ and him. So his apostleship came. So God, as it were, laid upon this man, Saul of Tarsus, a special burden, a special authority, a special call. And I want you to see what else he says about it in Romans chapter 11 and verse 13. And this is where we can smile. And this is where we look back and see, but by the grace of God, that's how we got in. Romans 11:13. I speak to you Gentiles, that's us. Here's a man who speaks to the Gentiles. Do you know if you'd have lived when Jesus Christ was here on earth, he wouldn't have had a word to say to you or to me. Because he didn't speak to the Gentiles. He spoke to the Jews. He was a Jew and he came to minister to the Jews. His name was Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. But here, thank God, in the New Testament, we have an apostle to you and to me. To the Gentile world, and he said, I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify myself. I magnify mine office. 
And the majority of Christianity, yea, the majority of the church of Jesus Christ today have de-emphasized that offer. And for that reason, we have all the problems in the church today. And I'm going to emphasize that as we get to Paul's last letter to 2 Timothy. He's an apostle of the Gentiles. 1 Timothy 2.7. 1 Timothy 2.7. And that's you and that's me. And basically that's 99 and 44, 100% of the church, the body of Christ, because most of us saved today are Gentiles, because this is a dispensation of the Gentiles. 1 Timothy 2.7, whereunto I am ordained, a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. Here was a man who was breathing, threatening against his fellow Jews because he thought they were apostates, and God took him and sent him to the Gentiles. What embarrassment, what humiliation for a Jew to go to the Gentiles. What would make a man do that? Only the grace of God. Only the grace of God. The Jews as a nation had no use for the Gentiles. And God changed that dispensation. Now I want you to see with me that special message that this man preached. And we go back to Galatians chapter 2. And it's important to see this. It's very important to see this. One of the things that we talked about as a component of the doctrine was the principle of right division. You cannot understand the scriptures if you do not rightly divide them. You do not get truth unless you rightly divide the word of truth. It's as simple as that. <coughs> to the extent that you rightly divide, to that extent you will get the truth. Now listen to what the scripture says. Rightly dividing the word of God simply means we recognize the distinctions. Not try to throw everything in a common pot. Not try to minimize all the differences. What is that today? That's the spirit of ecumenism. Get everything together. Pull it all together. And that's about the only way you're going to get it there. You've got to pull it. Because it doesn't naturally normally go that way. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul makes some very important distinctions. Notice verses 7 and 8. He went up to Jerusalem to communicate unto them, verse 2, the gospel which he preached among the Gentiles. Now why would he go up to tell them something that they already knew? Why would he have to go by special revelation to tell of those 11 apostles up at Jerusalem in the Jerusalem church a special message that he was preaching among the Gentiles if that's what they were preaching? It was very obvious in context they weren't preaching it. And that's what we see down in verse 7 and 8. Verse 6 it says, when they came together... They could add nothing to me, but contrarywise. What does that mean? It means I could tell them something. This new apostle that was not of men, not by men, but by Jesus Christ, could come to these men who'd been saved years before, ordained by Jesus Christ on the earth himself, and this man, Paul the apostle, could come and tell them something. That's what he said. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed to me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. Now, Paul and Peter are not the same, right? Right. Uncircumcision and circumcision are not the same, right? Right. Just because the word gospel is used in both of them, people forget all the differences and all they see is gospel. Well, the gospel of uncircumcision must be the same as the gospel of uncircumcision. And Peter must be the same as Paul then. No way. 
You see, if you amalgamate those things, if you blend them together, you have not rightly divided, you have wrongly divided, you don't have the truth, and naturally you have diminished the authority, the significance, and the distinction, distinctiveness of Paul. Now there's a price to pay for that. If you do that, you have immediately changed the doctrine. It is no longer a saving factor for yourself and those who hear you, according to 1 Timothy 4.16, and we'll get back to that in time to come. Paul wanted us to see, he wanted the Galatians to know that what God had given to Peter was different than what was given to him. And he went up by special revelation to Jerusalem to show them that it was different. And again, notice the honesty of these godly men. When Peter and James and John perceived the grace that was given unto me and Barnabas, verse 9, they gave unto us the right hand of fellowship. They patted us on the back and they said, go to the heathen. Now what right did they have to tell Paul that? Hadn't Christ told them that they should begin in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the world? What right did they have to absolve themselves from the so-called Great Commission? Christ told them to go to the world. Now they say, Paul, you go do it. We'll stay right here. They recognized that God had changed that program. And the one who had the message for the world now was Paul with the gospel of the uncircumcision. And they stayed with the calling and hope that they were part of the gospel of the circumcision. But they gave Paul the blessing to go out to his wider new ministry. Now if you don't see that difference, you will not understand the New Testament. If you don't see this distinction with this man Paul, you will not know the particular doctrine that was given specially to him for us, the church today. Notice, if you will, the book of Romans and chapter 16. We're going to do some jumping here. By that, I simply mean there'll be some gaps. You have to fill in with other scriptures not the least of which would be the first nine verses of the third chapter of Ephesians. But in the last chapter of Romans, verse 25, Paul comes to this conclusion. Now to him that is a power to establish you. Now is there any believer that does not want, that does not need establishment? Isn't that what we need today? Something to put your feet on? Something to rest in? Something to hold you firm? from all the winds of doctrine that are out there, Ephesians 4. Paul says, here it is. Now unto him whose power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret, by the way, since the world began. That's why Peter didn't preach it. He never heard of it until he met Paul. And here we have Paul's gospel referred to as the mystery, the secret, the hidden truth that now God has revealed to the greater glory of Jesus Christ in his ascension at the Father's right hand. Paul calls this in Acts 20, 24, my ministry, that is the gospel of the grace of God. Now I want you to come with me while we're here in Romans to this wrapping up thing. The doctrine that Paul taught not only his personal ministry, not only his message, but now specifically that doctrine, Romans chapter 6. 
And listen to this. So many times people say, well, this is so theoretic, this is so academic, uh, th this, this is so mechanical, it doesn't have any practical value. Listen here. Listen to this, Romans 6, 14. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Did you hear that? That means your old sinful self, your sinful nature shall not rule in your life. And the reason why it shall not is because you're not under the law dispensation, but you are under the grace dispensation. You have no excuse, believer, today to sin. I'm not teaching sinless perfection. But God says in the new dispensation, I have taken sin off the throne. And if it's on the throne in your life, you are living contrary to my dispensational purpose for the church, the body of Christ. Come back to the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, here he's speaking of Adam, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one, that is Christ, shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law, the law dispensation, entered, that the offense, Adam's sin, might abound. But where sin abounded, praise God, grace did much more abound. Now listen to the last verse. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Here it is. Today, God has taken sin off the throne. In his spiritual dealings with humanity, in this new dispensation of grace, God has done in this dispensation, which was never done in any previous economy, sin has been dethroned. Sin is in the grave. Well, what's on the throne? Grace. God has put his grace on the throne. How many Christians that you know don't know that? They're still living under the law. They're trying to accomplish their Christianity under the law, or at least the kingdom teaching of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They don't know that grace is on the throne today. And the doctrine that Paul was given in his 13 New Testament epistles spreads that all over the horizon. Grace is on the throne. The Holy Spirit is available to give you the victory you need. You don't go back to the flesh and under the law. You have to see this. Notice, if you will, quickly just back a couple chapters in the third chapter, verses 21 and 22. Those of you who are studying the book of Romans with us, remember this. But now, how many times in Paul's epistles he mentions this? At one time this, but now. There's a change, and we have to see that. Verse 21, but now. The righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by the faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. God's righteousness is shining today such as it never has since the sin of Adam and Eve. His righteousness, his grace, and the principle of faith now, where does all that come from? You won't get that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Christ did not teach that when he was here on earth. He taught the law and the kingdom precepts. And he lived and died under those. 
And he sent his 12 apostles out to do the same thing to the same nation to the ends of the earth. But the book of Acts tells us that was interrupted. And a new man comes on the scene with a new doctrine. And righteousness is ruling in heaven. Grace has been revealed. And it's by faith alone today. You only get that emphasis in Paul. And the reason the church is so confused is because they've gone to Peter and some Paul and little John and little Christ teaching in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they mix it all together and they get a spiritual hash that won't even substantiate a spiritual baby to say anything about a spiritual man. Now let's bring this to the conclusion. Come with me to Paul's last words to Timothy. That's where we started, wasn't it? First Timothy chapter 4. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I believe that this was his last letter. Shortly after the ink was dry on the parchment, he died. His life was over. And one of the last things he said as he wrote to his young son in the faith, Timothy, the man to whom he was passing the torch of the faith, the one who, him to who told him to take heed to the doctrine, the teaching that I had given my life for, had incorporated in my writings. This is what he says in verse 8. Listen carefully. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Do you think that Timothy would be ashamed of Christ? Well, why would Paul have to say that if he wouldn't? And what testimony of our Lord is Paul talking about? The only testimony of our Lord that Timothy knew. The testimony that Paul had given him. The doctrine that Paul had taught him. The emphasis, you can't miss it in First and Second Timothy. I've gone through these two epistles in the last three months and it's blown my mind how I've missed it in the last 30-some years of my ministry. It's there. The letters that he writes to the pastors are the ones that he emphasizes the mystery the most because these were the men that were to go out and propagate it. And he said in his last word, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, but don't stop there. Nor of me, his prison. Timothy? Could he ever be ashamed of the one who led him to Christ? To the one who had gotten the special revelation and committed it to Timothy and the other Timothys, the thing that you have heard of me among faithful men, commit thou to others, who shall be able to teach others also? The testimony that Paul told Timothy about of our Lord was early in the first century forgotten as was the Apostle Paul. And the church plunged into what we call the Dark Ages as a result. And the thing that brought the church out of that darkness under the leadership of men like Martin Luther was the reading and the study of what book? Romans. What a coincidence. The fundamentals of the faith. And the great truths of justification by faith, it revolutionized the religious world. 
when people begin to get back into Paul's epistles and not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord as Paul preached it, nor of Paul. After preaching for almost 35 years, I am more determined to follow our Lord Jesus Christ as I follow him through Paul. There is no other way. You can follow Christ today as he's taught in Moses, if you wish, to know honor and glory to God and no benefit to yourself. You can follow Jesus Christ today as John the Baptist taught him, to know honor and glory of God and no benefit to yourself. And you can follow Jesus Christ as Peter preached him on the day of Pentecost when he said to that nation, you have crucified your Messiah. And that does not honor and glorify Jesus Christ today because he is not the Messiah of Israel today. He is the head of the church, the body of Christ. And we get that from Paul. Paul is the apostle of grace, the apostle of the Gentiles. And he said to Timothy, I doubt there was a man closer to the, the Apostle Paul than Timothy. He said, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord that I've given to you. And Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. I believe it's important. I believe it's necessary to see the distinctiveness that God held up to the world, to the church, to the angels themselves of this insignificant, rebellious sinner Saul of Tarsus, this trophy of grace. And you and I must see that and rest in it. And that is going to be part of the doctrine that Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16 would save yourself. You listen carefully. Every basic theological view that comes across your desk that reaches for your attention, try to see how Pauline that view is, and you'll be shocked to see that it doesn't come usually from that stance. It comes out here in the Gospels. It comes back in the Old Testament. It comes from a mixture of all these other New Testament epistles, the so-called circumcision letters, it gets bounced over in the book of Revelation or somewhere out of the other texts. Not from Paul. Not from those 13 New Testament letters that are especially addressed to the church. That in itself should tell us something. We're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to conclude our time together this morning. And isn't it significant? Isn't it significant that we have to come to Paul for the instruction concerning the Lord's Supper? You don't go to Peter for that. You don't find that in John's writings. You don't find James talking anything about that. But you come to Paul, and Paul says that this was part of his revelation. This was part of the truth. And oh, the confusion, the ignorance that goes on today in the so-called church concerning the Lord's Supper. I dare say every church that you could go into today in, in our county of Rusk will have a different interpretation and application of what we're going to say and do here this morning. And most of them won't even come to 1 Corinthians 11. 
as a starting point. Paul said, I have received of the Lord, verse 23, that which also I delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament of my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. You see the perspective here? Paul doesn't say you should do it once a week. He doesn't say you should do it once a month. He doesn't say you should do it once a year. See, God allows us to read a scripture like this and say, let's decide what is most practical for us as to how often to do this. We're not told how often we should do it. Just do it. And what we do when we do do it. And the fact that we're doing again this morning proves that he hasn't come back for us because you see, when he comes back for his church, we won't do this anymore. We won't be necessarily looking back. We'll be looking right at him in his fullness and our gathering together with him. We in this church have what we call an open communion. There's no one that is excluded. You're all welcome to join with us because this is not the church of the Grace, excuse me, this is not the table of the Grace Bible Church. This is the Lord's table. If you belong to him, then this table is for you. And I want you to understand clearly that when we come here, we do not come to get our sins forgiven. Do you hear that? We're not coming with any magic formula in what will be said or any of the elements that are here on this table or anything that will be transmitted to you. You do not come to this place to get your sins forgiven, to get your life cleaned up. There's only one place where sins are forgiven, and that's at the cross. One place where God took care of sin once and for all at the cross. And if you've not come to the cross, if you've not met Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you will not get your sins taken care of here. In, in fact, Paul makes it very plain that people who come to the Lord's table must come with their sins already forgiven. They must come prepared. They must come with their sins confessed. And that's why we pause in a moment and ask God, prayerful examination of our own heart God is there anything in my life that isn't here that's here that shouldn't be there are there things in my life that I have against someone right here in this room that shouldn't be there it takes no ability to bend the elbow and take these elements and go along with everybody else but God looks beyond that into your heart and mind and if we're living a lie God is the one who says I'm going to have to judge you for that I'm going to have to come in and clean your life. I'm going to have to come in and spank you until you see that this needs to be taken care of. One of the benefits of this service is for us to have that corporate opportunity to say to God, Lord, my life needs to be what you want it to be. I'm going to ask that we bow together in prayer, in quiet time before God, just to say that. Father, we come to what you call the Lord's table. Father, we, we cannot pronounce any special ritual. We cannot say any special words 
that will make these elements that we participate in any different than what they appear to be and what they really are. It's not the elements that are significant. It is, Father, we as your people who remember your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for what he did. And we do it in the present aspect of our life, God, realizing that we need that continuous cleansing of his blood. And we come to you, Father, confessing our errors and our shortcomings and asking God that as we seat ourselves here that we will do it in true sincerity and honesty of heart. For we pray these things with thanksgiving in Christ's name. Amen. The doctrine, the teaching. Now obviously to designate a particular subject by those words means that we've taken to ourselves quite a subject. We're starting with 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16. This is our springboard. This is where we start. And out of it we have developed five topics. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul said to the young man Timothy, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. The saving that Paul is talking about here is not eternal salvation from the consequences of sin which eventuates in heaven. That's not the salvation that Paul is talking about. In the context from very verse 1 on through that entire fourth chapter, Paul is talking about false teaching, false doctrine. And he says the thing that will preserve or save or deliver Timothy from the false teaching that is going to intensify as the dispensation continues and preserve and deliver those who hear him will be the doctrine, the specific teaching. And I'm suggesting that out of that then topic that we've seen here, we are developing four subjects. First of all, what is the doctrine? Is it the whole Bible? Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. The first purpose of the whole Bible is doctrine or teaching. Did Paul have in mind that Timothy should master and emphasize and zero in on all scripture when he talked about the doctrine to come back and to save himself and his hearers from the insidious error that would come? I don't think so. In fact, I make bold to believe that Paul is talking about something that is very specific, something that is rather limited within the confines of scripture. And I'd make bold to believe that what Paul is saying here of the doctrine was that special truth that was committed to him distinctively separate from truth that had been given to Moses or that Christ himself taught when he was on the earth or that truth that was committed to the twelve apostles in the New Testament. And I believe that one of the components of the doctrine is the phrase that Paul himself gives us, the dispensation of grace. We live in God's economy of grace, and we've looked at that. 
Then there's another thing that I think is important in understanding the doctrine, and it is the component of right division. Paul did not develop that term. Excuse me, he did develop it. He didn't originate it. He did not invent it. It was used by the Hebrews in the Old Testament as they studied the law. But you will not come to a full understanding of the doctrine of which Paul is telling Timothy about if you don't rightly divide. That is to distinguish God's program and the scriptures therein contained in previous dispensations with the present dispensation. And then thirdly, we've seen that the doctrine emphasizes, and you have to see this if you're going to properly get a hold of that doctrine that Paul's talking about here, the distinctiveness of Paul. Not as a person, not as a human being, but as a divine channel that God gave through whom we have 13 of his New Testament letters that explain to us what I believe is that doctrine that God wants preached. And as you understand it and grasp it and it grasps you, you will be preserved from the apostasy of which Paul told Timothy was going to come in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now, this morning we come to one of those fantastic, impossible subjects to cover in just the time allotted to us. And I don't believe we can understand the doctrine that Paul is talking about to Timothy here without this component of which we've read in Romans 16, verse 25. So that's where I ask you to turn now. Romans 16, verse 25. Paul has concluded perhaps one of the greatest pieces of literature that has ever been penned. The book of Romans has been rightly called that. Lawyers have studied it and marveled at its logic, at the courtroom scene that is presented here as a skilled attorney presenting evidence upon evidence, a very logical treatise, the book of Romans. I call the book of Romans the fundamentals of the faith. All the basics are here. And until you as a Christian have some hold intellectually and spiritually on the book of Romans, to that extent you just don't have a basis or the fundamentals down. You've got to wrestle somehow, somewhere soon in your Christian experience with the truths in the book of Romans and get a hold of them and they of you. But verse 25 of the conclusion of this book says, Now to him, here it is, that is of power to establish you according to my gospel. Paul is very bold to make possessive the message that was given to him. He calls it my gospel in contradistinction to other gospels that were preached by other prophets, even the gospel that Christ preached of the kingdom when he was here. Paul says the only thing, Romans, that is going to establish you, the only thing, body of Christ, that's going to establish you is my gospel. And here he goes further. And, perhaps we could even see the word and to mean even, he's not talking about two separate things when he says my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, I believe they were synonymous. He's talking about one thing from two sides. Paul's gospel was the preaching of Jesus Christ in accord with the revelation, the unveiling of the secret. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. I don't believe you'll understand the doctrine that Paul told Timothy would save him and his hearers from the apostasy 
apart from Jesus Christ and the mystery. Now you try this the next time you're with a group of quote-unquote Christians, believers. Ask them very frankly and boldly, what did Paul mean when he talked about Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery? And if you're talking to an average group of Christians, you will get a very average blank look because the average Christian does not know anything about Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. They know a little about Jesus Christ according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but that is not Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. There's only one man in all of Scripture. There's only one body of truth of all of Scripture that addresses Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery. And that one man was Paul. And that body of Scripture was his 13 New Testament epistles. Now, go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you're interested in a portion of Scripture to be whetting your appetite in, I suggest it's going to be 2 Corinthians because that's the book that we'll be studying next. We finished here a few weeks ago 1 Corinthians. I have now finished my outline of 2 Corinthians. And within the next month, we'll be starting to study verse by verse of the book of 2 Corinthians. Chapter 5 of that book, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 16. Wherefore, henceforth, from now on, that's really what Paul is saying, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have, past tense, known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Paul is talking about two ways to know Christ. One way is after or according to the flesh. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, let's ask Paul. Paul, what did you mean by this? Well, let's turn back to some places in his writings where he uses that expression. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 and verse 5. Here Paul is entering into that heavy section of the book of Romans 9, 10, and 11 in which he explains for us as no other writer in all of Scripture. He explains for us in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans what has happened to Israel. Where is that special nation today? Why is it that she is cast out, as it were, from God's purposes and his plans. Romans 9, 5. Whose are the fathers, speaking concerning the nation of Israel, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. You see the phrase again. Christ according or concerning the flesh. The English says concerning. The English of 2 Corinthians 5 says according. It's the same Greek word, kata. means concerning or according. What did Paul mean in 2 Corinthians 5.16 when he says, though we have known Christ after or according to the flesh, what did he mean? He means, as he does in Romans 9.5, Jesus Christ with reference to his earthly ministry here on this earth, with, menace, with reference to his coming to Israel as a Jew 
as a particular individual. He was born of a Jewish family. He was born into the tribe of Judah. After and according to the flesh, he was a Jew. His ministry and message was only to the Jews. Paul likens all of Christ's coming according to the flesh, Israel. Now back in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, he says, though we have known Christ after the flesh, that's done, that's over, it's past tense. We don't know him now like that anymore. Oh, that God's people could get that across to them today. How many people go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, as the epitome of what we are to be doing and preaching and teaching today? But that is essentially Christ after and according to the flesh. Paul says, though we have known him in that capacity, now, from henceforth on, as Paul writes his epistles, we don't know him like that anymore. Well, why, Paul? Why is that? Well, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, literally there is a new creation. The old things of Christ after the flesh have passed away. The new is something entirely new with reference to our relationship and knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's the Apostle Paul, and in his letters that we read of a new status, a new relationship between believers in Jesus Christ. Now, come with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and see this dramatized again. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 18. Paul is trying to illustrate a principle here concerning the idea of identification. And he says in verse 18, Behold Israel after the flesh. What does he mean? Israel as God dealt with her as his earthly people. In the dispensation of the kingdom and the law, as Israel set up all of her promises and all the ritual and regulations after the flesh, listen to what Paul says, are not they which eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar, after the flesh, Israel was involved with the priesthood. After the flesh, Israel was involved with a blood sacrifice. You see, that aspect of God's dealing with humanity has been set apart, set aside. God has got something new now. It is no longer Israel or Christ after the flesh. It is now a new relationship that believers sustain to Jesus Christ. And listen. The only writer, the only body of Scripture that speaks of this new relationship is Paul and his 13 New Testament epistles. No other writer brings us these distinctions and these commands to leave and to no longer concern ourselves with Christ after the flesh. Come with me further here. To Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 15 and 16. Ephesians 2, 15 and 16. Paul puts it this way. Having abolished, and he's talking about what Jesus Christ did when he was here, in the flesh, according to the flesh, the man of Galilee, Jesus of Nazareth, 
having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances to make in himself of the two, that is, of the Jew and the Gentile, one new man. Notice the masculine emphasis here. The church in this dispensation is not used by a figure of femininity, but masculinity. Christ made of the two factors, Jew and Gentile, one new man, so making peace. Verse 16, and that he might reconcile both Jew and Gentile unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. I think the key in verse 16 is the little word by. Most believers substitute the word at. And they say it's at the cross that God began the new dispensation. No. Paul never says it was at the cross. At the cross you still have the old dispensation continuing. Overlapping the cross even to the day of Pentecost into almost mid-Acts. You have the old dispensation. You still have Christ according to the flesh. Now Paul comes on the scene, converted in the ninth chapter, commissioned and sent out to his Gentile ministry in the 13th chapter of Acts, and he preaches the cross as no one before had ever preached it. It is by means of what Christ accomplished on the cross that now God has reconciled the world to himself. That could never have been preached when Israel was still the favored upfront people. But after Israel had fallen unprecedented in Old Testament times, God then brings in the Gentiles without Israel and reconciles the world to himself. Only Paul talks about that. Only Paul talks about the gospel of reconciliation. Only Paul presents a world picture of Jesus Christ and salvation for the world such as we know it today. Without Israel, without Israel's promises being fulfilled, unprecedented in Old Testament prophecy, a mystery, a secret, but now revealed. Now there's something else, and we've already touched on that, but while we're here in Ephesians, let's look at this another point. Point number two. First, the difference between Christ after the flesh and Christ not after the flesh. Christ here on earth related to Israel and the apostles that he left here to continue the work that he started and Christ now in the heavens the height of a new creation which Paul referred to in Ephesians 2 as the body. That's an important clue we'll use to move on into the second point. Christ and his church, the body. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 22 and 23. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now hear this. The church of Jesus Christ today is the fullness of Jesus Christ. That's what it says here, doesn't it? In Colossians, we're told that Jesus Christ is the fullness of the Godhead. Now, the church, members of the body, plugged into Jesus Christ, identified with Jesus Christ, baptized by the Holy Spirit into Jesus Christ, the church is called the fullness of him that filleth all in all. 
And yet, if the him, who is Jesus Christ, is still worshipped and recognized and followed after the flesh, according to his relationship to Israel, you see how the monkey wrench is thrown completely into the machinery of God's purpose for today? The church is the fullness of Christ who is exalted in the majesty of the heavens, not as he was here with Israel, not as he was after the flesh, not as he was in his humiliation. So that if the church today is going back and dabbling and identifying itself with Christ after the flesh, you see what it has done. It has spiritually prostituted the greatest revelation of Jesus Christ that the Bible knows. They have brought him down by refusing to acknowledge him in his glorious setting of which we, the church, are now the fullness of him in his exaltation as the head of a new creation. This thing just isn't a matter of splitting hairs. This thing just isn't a matter of denominations. This is the doctrine. And little wonder that Paul would say to these Romans, Now, unto him who is able to establish you. Not by his teachings that he gave when he was here on earth. They had their purpose. They had their function. But God has superseded them today. According to my gospel, Paul says. Which is the preaching of Jesus Christ, yes but in accord with the unveiling of the secret, God's special purpose in grace. While we're here in Ephesians, turn, if you will, to the third chapter. Isn't it amazing that no matter where you go in developing any basic theme for today, you can't miss either Romans or Ephesians. You don't miss many in between either, really. But Romans and Ephesians are almost like the two wings on the bird. Which is the most important? Well, you can't get along with either one, without either one. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God. Now, there was no doubt in Paul's mind that they had heard. The word if here literally means if you have heard and you have, because I've told you, you've heard of it, you know it. So we could probably translate it, since you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given me to you, word, how that by revelation, now as soon as you use the word revelation to most Christians, what do they think about? John and the last book of the New Testament, right? The apocalypse, that's what the Greek word revelation means, apocalypsis. But there is, in a sense, for us today, a greater revelation than what John saw as recorded in his book called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Because Paul sees Jesus Christ in a greater glory. He sees him ex exalted far above all heavens. And you know what else he sees? He sees you and I in Christ with that exaltation. If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word, how that by revelation, a special unveiling, he made known unto me the mystery. Here it is. That's our word. 
as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of God, that is, of Christ. And this mystery, verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Notice the difference between verse 5, how other apostles and prophets got that revelation that Paul got, and how Paul got it in verse 3. In verse 3, Paul said he got it by revelation of Jesus Christ, face to face, eyeball to eyeball, much like Moses got the law back on Sinai. The other apostles, as they came in contact with Paul, heard and learned, as these Ephesians did, of the revelation of the mystery by the what? What does it say? You with me? By the Spirit. Paul got the revelation of the mystery directly from Jesus Christ, just like he was converted on the road to Damascus, right? No intermediary, no prophets, no apostles, directly from Jesus Christ. How do you and I get the revelation of the mystery? Same way those apostles and prophets in verse 5 get it, through the Holy Spirit. Through the written record that's here, the Holy Spirit reveals to us what God has already given. That's important for us to see because many people have diminished the distinctiveness of Paul by saying, well, you see, verse 5 says that it's no different than what anybody else was preaching. Other apostles and prophets saw it. They got it. They preached it too. Yes, they got it by the Spirit after they came in contact with Paul. But Paul got it first and foremost by direct confrontation with Jesus Christ. You know, there's a religion in the United States today that essentially says the same thing. Their religion came to them by an angel, an angel by the name of Moroni. And they call themselves by the name of Jesus Christ. What did Paul say to the Galatians? If any man preach unto you any other gospel, if an angel from heaven preach unto you any other gospel than what I have preached unto you, what's the word? Anathema. It's the Greek word which means let him be accursed. There's a curse of God pronounced upon anything that doesn't bear the stamp of Paul. Not because Paul was so great, but because God revealed through him the doctrine, the teaching. And one of the great problems of the church today is that they have subordinated Paul to all the other teachers of the Bible and to all of the other gospels of the scriptures and his writings to all the other scriptures in all of scripture. Instead of seeing that he is distinct for today, it is by following the truth, the doctrine as he wrote it, that preserves us from the inroads of the enemy called the apostasy. And to the extent that the church, right after the death of the apostles, did not heed Paul's teaching, to that extent they went into the dark ages and hear my voice, we're seeing the exact same thing today. Well, we have yet another factor here. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 32. Paul is talking here about the husband and wife relationship. And one of the greatest relationships here and the way that we're supposed to live in the marital status is as a result of Christ's love for his church. Because he is the head of the church, 
so the husband is to be the head of the wife. As he loved the church, so the husband is to love his wife. And as the church is subject to Christ, so the wives should be subject to their husbands. And so you see this parallel all the way through the latter part of the fifth chapter. Then we come down to the 32nd verse. And Paul says in well, verse 31, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Verse 32, this is literally a mega, that's what the word great here is in the Greek, a mega mystery. Well, wait a minute, Paul says, I'm not talking about husband and wife. I'm not talking about marriage here. I speak concerning Christ and the church. The relationship that we can sustain to Jesus Christ in his exaltation is God's mega mystery. Super truth. Exalted doctrine. In conclusion, we come to our starting point, Romans chapter 16. Romans 16, 25. Now, to him that is a power to establish you according to my gospel even the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began I would dare say in the majority of churches in our city and our county Jesus Christ is being preached this morning that in of itself is no testimony to the accuracy and the validity of that church. Many of the cults preach Jesus Christ. A certain cult that comes to your door knocking and passing out their little watchtower magazine preaches Jesus Christ. The false religion that I mentioned to you before that emphasized the revelation they got through the angel Moroni also preaches Jesus Christ. I dare say that every church this morning in the city of Bruce has preached Jesus Christ. But I dare say from the word of God, that's not enough. Jesus Christ must be preached according to the revelation of the mystery which Paul preached, which God gave to him as a component of his 13 New Testament epistles, else there is no establishing factor. There is no establishing factor for the purpose of God's church apart from this doctrine. It's just that simple. It's just that plain. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, 14 to see the opposite. And that's why we have all the denominations we have in the United States and the world today. That's why we have all the cults. Ephesians 4, 14. Paul could see what was coming even in the closing days of his lifetime. And the Holy Spirit allowed him to write these things so we would be prepared for it. Ephesians 4.14 says that we henceforth be no more children. Now there are aspects in which it is good to be like a child. Childlike faith. Childlike in obedience. Childlike in readiness to forgive and forget. But there are some places where childishness has no place in the life of a mature spiritual believer and listen to what paul says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro carried about with carried about with every wind of there's our word doctrine teaching by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive 
The expression here, slight of men, in the original Greek is the expression of the dice. Good old Las Vegas. The cubes that were put in the hands, even back there in the Greek culture, with the little digits on them, and shaken properly, and then thrown on the floor. There's no one with any degree of perfect accuracy that can predict what will come when those dice are thrown, the slight of men. That's where gambling comes in. You run the risk. You take your chance when the dice are thrown. And Paul calls that every wind of doctrine, the slight of men, the cunning craftiness of those who lie in wait to deceive. Paul says, don't be like that. That relates to childishness. That's not spiritual maturity. Keep reading. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And that's one of the verses we're going to use at the men's retreat next month over at Northern Grace Youth Camp because the subject we've been assigned is edifying one another, building up one another. You see, the opposite of being established in Paul's gospel and the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, the opposite is here in Ephesians 4, 14, the dice, every wind of doctrine. And that's what's confronted the church for the last 2,000 years. Whichever the way the wind blows, that's the doctrine they take. And so a new denomination springs up, a new splinter, a new cult. And they're all out there. And what will save us from that? What will deliver us from that? What will rescue us from that? Exactly what Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.16. Timothy, take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you shall both save yourself and them that hear you. Is it so hard? Is it so difficult? Is it so impossible to take the word of God as it was plainly given to and through the Apostle Paul and believe it and stand upon it and rest upon it even though we in the Grace Bible Church of Bruce look around and say, well, listen, Nobody else in our county is preaching that. Nobody else is teaching this. Nobody else is emphasizing that. And beyond our county, we look into our state and see so few others that even have any appreciation or understanding of this. Surely they must be right, and we must be wrong. Timothy, in doing this, you shall both save yourself and them that hear thee. God never promised that the truth would be in the majority. In fact, Paul told Timothy what would happen in the last days. It would be in the minority. The apostasy, the departure would be the thing. Those who stand for the purity of the truth and the doctrine would be the minority. 
Well, as we come to the conclusion this morning, we're going to ask you to turn in your hymnal, if you would, to hymn 252. Jesus Christ, of whom we sing, who is the subject of our message this morning, once was humilified. I put two words together there. In his humility, he stooped to die your death. He humbled himself. He allowed the stripes and the sin that was yours and mine to be laid upon him. But hear me this morning, he is no longer in that undignified, humiliated state. The Jesus Christ that we invite you to receive as your Lord and Savior is exalted this morning. He is at the Father's right hand this morning. He's the head of a new creation this morning. He invites you to be joined to him and be seated with him in the heavenlies. But he once stooped so low for you. And hear me according to the authority of the word of God. If you go throughout your life and ignore that glorious, exalted son of God, the head of the church, God is determined that you will pay eternally for it. Because it's either Christ or you paying for your sins. If you're here this morning and you're not sure, you're, you really tremble in the idea that you might die in the very near future and you're not sure if you go to God's heaven. You're not sure that you've received Christ as your Savior. I beg of you. I plead with you this morning to receive the gift of eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Be a part of this glorious thing that God has made the fullness of his Son who is in the business of filling all in all. God wants to fill you if you receive the gift of his Son and salvation in Christ Jesus. Have you done that? Can you look back to a specific point in your life where you know for sure that you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord? If you haven't, will you do it? Why not now? Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. As we sing together, 252, the songwriter says, Come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord. You're not going to get punished. You're not going to get spanked. You're not going to get beaten. You're going to get forgiven. You're going to get a new home, a new family, a new destiny, a new life. And he will surely give you rest by trusting in his word. Only trust him. Only trust him. He will save you quicker than I can snap my fingers. He sees that attitude of trust and hope in your heart.